join me in standing out of reverence for Christ who comes to you in His Word and turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 50. If you don't happen to have a Bible, it's always useful to have one open and in front of you. So we invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you and use that this morning as we look at what is the third servant song in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we've taken a break in these weeks of Advent from our now year-long study through the Gospel of Luke to look at the four servant songs in Isaiah's prophecy. Servant songs that are really more like prophetic poems of the coming Messiah. With each passing song, what we are seeing is, is more color uh, painted in by the Spirit of this figure, this mysterious servant who's going to come and redeem God's people. And this morning we look at the third song, which is found in verses 4-11 through 11 of Isaiah chapter 50. So as I read the passage, kids, see if you can notice a phrase that is repeated four different times in our eight verses. So four different times the servant speaks of something particular as it will be important to us as we study this passage. But let me go ahead and read our text and then I'll pray for our study and then we will begin. So let us hear now for God is indeed speaking to us through His Son. Jesus Christ. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not my back. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come now to praise Your name through Your Word. We come to listen to Your Son. We come even to storm the gates of hell through it's the preaching of Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we do our spiritual warfare. And so help us to put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, to take up the shield of faith and put on the helmet of salvation that we might hear rightly, that You might minister to us by Your Word and Spirit. Help me to preach as Your Word says I must with boldness and with, with clarity unto the good of all those who are listening. So we pray that you would do us that great spiritual good you have promised through your word, that you might be glorified and honored in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
One of the best-loved and most famous Presbyterian pastors of the 19th century uh, was a man named Andrew Bonar. He was a Scottish pastor. And after his death, his daughter took his diary and published it in the form of a book that has since become something of a classic of Presbyterian piety. And I've spent the last few years of my life studying one of Andrew Bonar's best friends, and so I've spent time in his diary for a lot of different reasons. And as I've made my way through the diary a couple times, I've often found the most moving entry in his diary to come on Saturday, October 15th, 1864. Here's what he wrote. Oh, what a wound. Last night, most suddenly, after three hours sinking, my dear, dear Isabella was taken from me. That's his wife of many, many years. He says, Lord, pour in comfort, for I cannot. It needs the Holy Ghost to work at such a time. He goes on to say, I had been reading between dinner and tea my usual verse, Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, which says, The Lord is good and is a refuge to His people. Oh, little did I think how I would need it in half an hour after. Lord, Lord, make this a time of the Spirit being poured out upon my family. And I read that because I do think for many of us in our life in Christ, we go through seasons, don't we, in which suffering storms into our life, when affliction invades, when weariness consumes. And the question for us as we come to this third servant song is, what do we do in the midst of our frailties in such a time? when weakness and weariness take over our souls. For we find in the life of Andrew Bonar that he went to God's Word, crying out for comfort by the Spirit. And in many ways, our servant song today is going to answer the question of why it is exactly that saints throughout the history of the church have been able to come to God's Word and find unspeakable, inexpressible comfort in even the most harrowing and hard circumstances that we find ourselves in. So if you're in here this morning and you might be in a season of that kind of affliction or suffering, the Lord has a word for you. If you think that the Christian life is all about triumph and blessing, only increasing day by day and week by week, the Lord has a word for you. If you think you can pave your own path to glory, the Lord has a word for you this morning. And the word, the theme of this text is God's servant for the weary. If you've been with us in recent weeks, we saw in the first servant song from Isaiah chapter 42, God's servant for the burden. As there was this prophecy of the coming servant who would extend God's justice to the ends of the earth to bring rest to those who are oppressed. Then last week in the second servant song in chapter 49, we saw God's servant for the nations. We saw that He's not going to be just the Lord of one locale, the Redeemer of one realm, or the King of one country. Uh, the servant is going to be the Savior for all the ends of the earth. And this morning, as the Spirit again is taking this Scripture pencil, as it were, and sketching in with ever more detail the truth of God's coming servant, what He wants us to see this morning is that His servant is going to have unusual skill in ministering to those who are weary. So kids, did you notice as I read through the passage just a few minutes ago that phrase repeated four different times? 
It's the phrase, the Lord God, which is Adonai Yahweh, which is the sovereign Lord. You'll see it's repeated, notice, in verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, and verse 9, kind of introducing these major sections of the song. And so what I want to do as we walk through the song is use those four occurrences of the sovereign Lord's name to kind of serve as guideposts into four particular truths of the servant that the servant wants us to know, for he's the one speaking in this passage. So four particular truths about God's servant for the weary is what we want to look at this morning. But before we get there, I want to ask the question we've been asking in recent weeks of each one of these prophetic poems is, can we put these words on the lips of Jesus Christ? I've said each week that there has been an endless source of controversy throughout the ages about the identity of the servant mentioned in Isaiah's four servant songs. And interestingly, as the servant songs progress, there's less and less debate and disagreement about who's really speaking. But here's one way I would want you to get after understanding these words do belong on the lips of our Lord. Look at verse 6 at what the servant says. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, if you know anything about the Lord Jesus' ministry, you likely know that all of those things literally became true in His life. But what you may not also realize about the Lord Jesus' ministry is He also predicted that all of those things were going to come true in His life. So you might turn to the right several books, the Gospel of Mark. One simple way we might get at the reason for confidence of placing these words in the mouth of our Savior. In Mark chapter 10, what you find throughout the Gospels is Jesus is making a prediction, a prophecy to His disciples of His coming death in Jerusalem. And if you get there in Luke, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10, verse 33, He says to His disciples, See, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. He's going to be delivered over to death. And verse 34 says this, Jesus says, And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And scholars have noted throughout the ages how the verbs of verse 34 are almost identical verbs to Isaiah 50 verse 6. It's as though to Jewish disciples, these 12 men following Jesus around, who would have known the servant song that we look at this morning, that Jesus says, hey, you remember this prophecy of the servant to come in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6? That's me. I'm going to that disgraced death. I'm going to that courtyard of mocking. They will beat my back. They will pull out my beard. He is the suffering servant, Savior, who speaks to us in this passage. And he wants us to see four particular truths about who he is and what will happen to him. And the first truth is somewhat, I think, undervalued in our churches and lives today because we're told about the servant who learns. The servant who learns. Look at verse 4. The servant, in kind of autobiographical fashion, says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Now we saw last week in chapter 49, the second servant song, that the servant's mouth was going to be his weapon for his mission. And he spoke of his mouth as a sharp sword or a polished arrow. And what we see here in this passage is that he's going to have a taught tongue. The language here is he's going to have a scholarly tongue, a disciple's tongue, a learned tongue. And what we're meant to see from Isaiah 49 is that 
the Savior's mouth is going to be powerful. From chapter 50, the Savior's mouth is going to be empowering. Because notice the reason for his learned tongue at the, uh, as verse 4 continues. He has the tongue of those who are taught that I might know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. One of the best loved pastors in Edinburgh was a man named Alexander White, an incredible preacher and theologian. He used to tell this story of going over to his lawyer's house, Dr. John Carment, for some sort of business matter. And so he was over at Dr. Carment's study, and eventually they dealt with the business matter at hand. And evidently, Dr. Carment kind of pushed all the papers away from his desk. And earnestly, this old man leaned in to speak to Dr. Alexander White and said, Dr. White, do you have an, a word for an old sinner like me? And Alexander White was struck by the kind of surprising response, and he kind of scrambled for an answer, as pastors often do. And he began to speak of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, not knowing that in God's providence, Dr. Carmen was going through a prolonged season of despair and depression. And it was a light that he needed precisely in that moment. And sometimes you might ask the question of your life in Christ, does Jesus have a word for me in the midst of my suffering? Does Jesus have a word for me in the midst of my difficulty? When I am in the dark night of the soul, can he give me any comfort? And here the servant says, yes, I can. I have a tongue that knows how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And if you've ever counseled people or discipled people in a season of prolonged weariness, you know how difficult it feels, how difficult it is to sustain them with a word. It doesn't work to just say, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Sort it out. You'll figure it out. Just work harder. A word of comfort is difficult. Bruised reeds are easily broken. Flickering flames are quickly blown out, but in the hands of this Savior, they're made whole, they're made right. He's able to sustain and to strengthen His people. And notice as, verse continu- as the verse continues, He tells us why He's able to do that. It says, morning by morning, He awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. It's a fascinating section, isn't it? Uh, what the Son is saying here is, the Father is my wake-up. He's the alarm each morning saying, time to get up. And what is he going to do? Time to get up, to know me through my word. So we did also see in the second servant song that the Lord used this language of he's going to hide away his servant for a period of time. In much the same way that arrows are hidden in a quiver. We might ask the question of why exactly was Jesus hidden away for 30 years in his life? What was he doing in those three decades to prepare him for his three years of ministry? And I I think we ought to say on balance of this passage and the totality of God's word is that he was studying scripture. We know for certain because of the way Jewish disciples of the time would have learned scripture that he would have had the book of Isaiah memorized, all 66 chapters. Many scholars today would tell you he probably had the entirety of the Old Testament memorized written on his heart, discovering the true nature of the mission that was set before him, the fullness of his Father's glory and ministry and mercy towards him. Morning by morning, he wakes up to study God's Word. 
And because he knows God's word so well, he can give a word to God's weary people. And surely then, this is a text for churches today. But what's our greatest need in churches? To know Christ through his word. To know Jesus Christ through his word. Because we wake up each morning. Some noise, some person wakes us up. What do we awaken to? Many of us awaken to our smartphones. Others of us awaken to social media. Maybe it's to CNN, Fox News, or ESPN. How many of us truly and sincerely awaken to God's Word? And kids, I want you to know that this is a text for you too. Do you remember why it is that Jesus is wowing the authorities, the religious authorities, when he's only 12 years old coming into their place of worship? Because he is a 12-year-old knew God's Word so deeply. Why do the crowds marvel at His authority? Why are the religious leaders astonished at His ability in instructing them in the truth? Morning by morning, He has awakened me. And surely then, even for those of you who are members here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, it's a word for you. Do you want Redeemer to be a grace-filled place? I hope you say yes. Do you want Redeemer to be a place in which weary, weak souls come and find rest? And I hope you say yes. Well, then there is a direct correlation we must see between our depth of knowledge in Scripture and our skill in handling, in handling bruised reeds and flickering flames. And surely this is a text, too, for another great need in our age today, which are mature, healthy church leaders. Oh, one of my favorite theologians once equipped in a sermon on this passage, he said, why can't Johnny preach? And he said, well, Johnny sleeps in. Johnny doesn't wake up to be instructed in the Word of God. What we need are men who are not experts in books of church order and bylaws. Men who are expert and most learned in confessions and theologians. We need men who, like John Bunyan said, prick them anywhere and they bleed the Bible. You know, a, a grace-filled, gospel-sustaining ministry is a difficult one. It's much easier to have a ministry that points the finger. It's much easier to have a ministry that condemns. But a ministry that can strengthen and sustain weary souls is a ministry that needs to be on its knees. Morning by morning, awakening to God's Word. It's the servant who learns. Secondly, he's the servant who suffers. Look at verse 5. The Lord has opened my ear. Now, as best I can tell, the first time that that phrase of opening an ear shows up in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 21. It's this picture of a slave, of a servant, who loves his master so much that he doesn't want to leave, to go free from his master. And so what the Old Testament law says he should do is take the master, should take his servant, and set him up by a doorpost, and then drive a hole into his ear, pierce his ear, open his ear, as a sign of his devotion and love to his master. Here's the servant saying that the Father has done the same thing to me. And see also the servant's obedience, because notice what he says. I was not rebellious, for the nation of Israel has rebelled. Uh, this servant has obeyed. Not just that, he also says, I turned not backward. For the people of Israel turned back on their Lord who redeemed them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. This servant Savior is going to be faithful and fulfill in every place that the people fell short. He is the obedient son. 
There was a period in my life after I finished playing soccer for a living that I had something of a romantic desire to go into the fire service. And someone in my family that knows me well quickly told me, hey, Jordan, if you want to go fight fire, you also have to be a paramedic. And the reason they mentioned that is because I have something of a pathological inability to physical pain, like seeing visceral physical pain. You know, if it's painted or spoken about on a page in a book, I, you know, turn the page as quickly as possible. If it shows up in a movie, I fast forward or turn my eyes away as quickly as possible. Isn't it true that some of you in the room may have this kind of visceral reaction to physical pain. But we dare not fast forward. We we dare not look past the physical pain of verse 6. Because it's pain that means your life. It's visceral torture that means your salvation. For look at what he says, not just about his obedience in verse 5, but notice the servant's willingness. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And we'll see more of this language in the remarkable fourth servant song, Lord willing, next week in Isaiah 53. So I wouldn't give too much comment there, but the only thing I would say here is, do you not marvel at the Son's willingness? He gave His back to be bloodied. His face to have its hair pulled out. He humbled Himself unto spitting, and disgrace, and the mocking scorn of humanity, that you might know salvation. And Jesus is at pains in the gospel to tell us he did this willingly. No one made him do it. No one forced him to go into that garden of Gethsemane and sweat teardrops, these these bloody drops of anguish and anxiety. He goes into the dark night of the soul, crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Willingly. As John chapter 10 says, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me. This is the son. This is the servant who suffers. He's the servant who learns. We see next also that he's the servant who trusts. Look at verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. The Lord God helps me. Make sure you have an understanding of Jesus Christ that doesn't portray him as like the personification of personal power. And by that I mean, students, it's not as though Jesus walked into his earthly ministry and and rolled up his sleeves and and cracked his knuckles and said, hey, I'm the sinless son of God, let's do this. He needed the Father's help, didn't he? We saw in the first servant song, he needed the Spirit's power in order that he might be the perfect son of God, the perfect sacrifice for sinners like you and me. His mission here on earth was one of perfect dependence. And his dependence upon God's strength, notice, brought him great confidence, determination, even about his preservation that was on the way. Look at how verse 7 continues. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. If you were with us earlier in the summer when we were in Luke chapter 9, there's this kind of key moment in Luke's gospel in verse 51 of Luke 9 where Jesus uses the language of Isaiah 50. But he says he's set his face like a flint. Remember this? To go to Jerusalem. That he's got this divine destiny date with death. And he's determined to get there. Like a, a face set in stone so resolute is God's servant to bring salvation to sinners. So kids, have you ever seen a statue? Maybe you've looked upon in school Mount Rushmore. You know, these these 
stony figures of a few of our presidents, and does their face ever move? Of course it doesn't. It doesn't waver. And that's the idea here in the servant's determination. In the midst of the disgrace, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the mockery, in the midst of all of the shame, he still goes with resolute willingness to the death that is before him. And notice further his confidence illustrated in verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? So you need to know kind of the atmosphere of the language here. It's changed to that of a, of a courtroom. The servant is saying, I'm going to be put on trial. And where is my adversary? Where's my prosecutor? The one that will condemn me. And you do know, don't you, that Jesus was put on trial the night he was betrayed. You do know, don't you, that he was silent before his accusers. But his silence, according to this passage, reveals not only his innocence, but his confidence. For you see how verse 8 ends, who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. You know, kids, it's just an old way of saying, bring it on. So confident is he in his father's vindication. His family may have thought he was out of his mind. One of his disciples betrayed him. Another one of his disciples denied him. The other ten disciples deserted him. The covenant people, the nation of Israel of God, rejected him. And yet, what does he do? He entrusts himself to the father's care knowing that vindication is on the way. And the Bible tells us that vindication came three days later when the stone rolled away. And God the Father raised His Son from the dead, a declaration of His pleasure in His perfect, sinless servant. He is the servant who learns, the servant who suffers, and the servant who trusts. And we find out fourthly in verses 9-11, through 11, He's also the servant who judges. Look at verse 9. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So see kind of the development, if you will, of his confidence. He's, he's first of all in verses 8 and even the first part of verse 9. He's confident that these charges, this trial he's going to have to go through, will result in his innocence, his, his pardon. But he goes even further at the end of verse 9 to say not just that will his accuser's falsehood be shown to be nothing other than that, a lie. Also, it's going to mean their destruction. Just as a, a moth eats an old shirt, so will my vengeance fall upon my enemies. So it's not as though the servant just trusts in God's vindication. The servant further says that he's going to be the means by which God meets out vengeance upon his enemies. And the New Testament tells us that over and over. Think of a passage like Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. In Him, the Father, so the Father in Christ, triumphed over His enemies and put them to open shame. He is the servant who judges. I'm not sure many of you, maybe many of you, have heard of the name William Manchester before. He's an author that's well known for his multi-volume biography of Winston Churchill, which is kind of the standard Churchill study. And he is well known throughout the world for even other books, uh, one of which is Goodbye Darkness, subtitle, A Memoir of the Pacific War. So it's his kind of diary. It's his reflections on fighting in the Pacific theater of World War II. 
And somewhere near the beginning of that book, here's what Manchester says. He just kind of meditates on the nature of darkness. He says, The child within us never vanishes. Neither does man's atavistic fear of the dark. Buried within our memory banks, too deep to rich by reason, lies the conviction that hideous, hairy specters, black-robed and carrying bloody scythes, lurk beneath the treetops, riding in the night, waiting for the dark of the moon when they will pounce and shred with their jagged teeth and devour. He goes on to say, darkness can strip men of their sanity. I wonder what you think about darkness. When the dark night envelops you, kids, what do you think about? What fears might assault your soul? And what we find now in the final two verses of our servant song is the servant speaking of two different responses to darkness. You'll notice in verse 10 and 11, there's this kind of mirroring function. Each verse has six lines. Each verse is about a response to darkness. And so as we begin to close, I want to close with these two verses asking two questions. First, is your reliance on the servant? Is your reliance on the servant? Because verse 10 and 11 are essentially asking the question of whose light guides your way in the night? Look at verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? It's not a verse to be raced by, insofar as it's telling us that you want to know if a person fears the Lord, which is the summary statement of true biblical piety and spirituality. You want to know if a person fears the Lord? Pay attention to their listening. Do they listen to the word of the servant? Do you want to know if a person fears the Lord? Are they increasingly growing in the word of the servant day by day like the servant did in verse 4? But he goes on to talk now about darkness. Look at verse 10 as it continues. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So we need to know something is going on here in the servant speaking about darkness. Uh, we read last week in our gospel reading from John chapter 8 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not be in darkness. Verse Peter chapter 2 says, God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians chapter 1 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And here the servant is saying, Let him who walks in darkness. So, what's he talking about? Well, it's not the darkness of sin that New Testament texts are talking about. Here it's the darkness of suffering. It's what the old divines would have called the dark night of the soul. When all is around you full of weariness and weakness, suffering, affliction, hardship, and difficulty, what are you going to do? And he says the first response is reliance on the servant. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So why Psalm 23 says, doesn't it? Even though I walk through the valley of what? The shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For this servant, shepherd, is with me. Now, don't you appreciate the realism of Scripture? It recognizes the Spirit knows that so many of God's people spend their days this side of heaven in darkness. Yet it's still possible to trust in the name of the Lord, to rely on the servant. So maybe you're in here this morning and you are going through that shadow of death, that season of darkness. Recognize that you can lean on this servant Savior and cling to Him. Why? Because He's God's servant for the weary. can sustain you in the dark with a simple word. It's His word that will be the light and lamp for your feet. So that's the first question. 
How you're responding in the night. Are you relying on the servant? Is your reliance on the servant? Verse 11 flips it around by asking, is your dependence on yourself? Notice what the servant says. Behold, all you who kindle the fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. So here's the idea that the servant's talking about. You're in darkness. Verse 10 says you're trusting in the name of the Lord. You're relying on the servant. Verse 11 says you're in darkness and you can't stand it so you light a torch yourself. You follow your own personal Savior to deliverance. You follow your own torch-bearing idol to safety. It's a do-it-yourself remedy that he has in mind here in verse 11. You light your own way by your own wisdom, strength, and ability. And look what falls upon such people at the end of verse 11. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. It's a striking picture in that the servant is saying, you can light your own way by your own fire, but what that will lead to at the end is only the fires of hell forever. This is God's servant for the weary. A servant for weary people who are often found in darkness is your dependence on yourself. See the servant's promise of justice. It can only lead at the very end of that path to eternal judgment. But see also the servant's mercy. If your reliance is on him, because he walked through the darkness in your place, because he knew the shadow of death, because he went through the dark night of the soul, you can trust in him and find the light that leads to everlasting rest for weary people at the end of the age. For this is God's servant for the weary. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you indeed are a God who is merciful and gracious unto us. Oh, we pray that you would help us to know your compassion and kindness that in the midst of our struggles and our sufferings, we would be able to still trust in the light that is Jesus Christ. So we do pray that you would do exactly what your Son says He does this morning and sustain the weary and give light to those who are in darkness, that we would turn from our sins unto Jesus Christ and find rest in His name. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.